0: You can open in your Bibles to John chapter 20. I hope hope you will. I think it will help you if you have a Bible in front of you there and can follow along. I want to actually start where our text ends. Dave read for us a lengthy passage. We're going to try to walk through all of it this morning. But I want to look... Again, where John ends this section, there in verse 30, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. And so John starts by talking about all these signs that that, that Jesus did, right? And and there's so many that he couldn't possibly record them all. He did so many things that he couldn't, couldn't write them all down. And these signs are the miracles that Jesus did, you know, turning water into wine, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the blind see, the dead are raised. All of these signs were meant to point to a particular truth. They all pointed to what he says there in verse 41 or 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. So as we think about our our text, it sort of concludes with this this passage about, well, there's these signs that Jesus did. But these signs, again, the the miracles, the healings, the raising of the dead, they were all sort of building to this ultimate sign, the clearest billboard announcing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And what is it in John chapter 20 that's that's the clear sign? It's the resurrection of Jesus. Christ. So as we think about these words, and John says we've recorded these signs and we've recorded the, the, the history of the resurrection so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So as we think about this passage this morning, keep this in mind, that the words that are recorded for us are God's words to us. They're God's words to us. Even as Dave read an extended passage this morning, I wonder, if, I wonder if our minds were tempted to go places because, man, 31 verses, was. Well, listen, these are, you know, I, you might, never mind. <laughs> I just want to say this. These words that John recorded for us are different than any words recorded outside of the Bible. These are God's words to us. These are life-giving words. These are words that open eyes. They give sight to the glory of the gospel in Jesus Christ. And John says these words create new life. They create new life. And so our first point this morning is if we sort of think that that John is saying the, the signs teach us that Jesus is the Christ. Well, our, our first point this morning is that the empty tomb declares that Jesus is the Son of God. The empty tomb declares that Jesus is the Son of God. And we find that empty tomb in the first ten verses of our text this morning. And of course, we are, we are borrowing terminology from Romans chapter 1, where, where Paul says the re- resurrection declares Jesus the Son of God. But I do think that is John's point here in chapter 20 as he records the resurrection, and as he records the appearances to the disciples. And then he says that these signs are written down for you so that you may believe. Well, what's what's the empty tomb declaring then? Well, verse 31, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. So the empty tomb is the vindication of Jesus. It's it's the announcement that He is the Son of God, that He is who He says He is. And it teaches us then that Jesus died not for His own sins, not for His own rebellion, not for His own wickedness. If Jesus had died for His own sins, He would have remained in the grave because the wages of sin is death. And if Jesus is still under that penalty, then He must have suffered for His own sins. So then his death, again, we're kind of summarizing what John's been teaching up to this point, his death was a substitutionary death. He died not for his own sins, but for us in our place, taking our sins upon himself, and thereby, to to borrow language from Paul again, nailing our sins to the cross. You know, when Jesus says in John chapter 19, when he when he says, it is finished. In light of the resurrection, we know that he didn't mean he is finished. He means that his obedience was complete, his suffering is finished, the will of the Father accomplished, his physical life exasperated, and he bowed his head and died. And at the end of John chapter 19, they kind of quickly take his body down. The Sabbath is coming. They prepare him as best they can with the time they have, and they put him in the tomb. And that's where John chapter 20 starts. It says that Mary shows up early, early, like right right as the sun's getting ready to come up. It's dark. It's early on a Sunday morning, and Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb, presumably, to, to, to finish what they started with the preparation of the body, and to her dismay, the body isn't there, right? And, and Mary's first thought isn't, he must be resurrected, right? Her first thought is actually that someone must have stolen the body. You know, if the if the early followers of, of Jesus sort of got together and tried to come up with a with a plan to sort of convince the world that Jesus resurrected even though he's still dead. I I don't think they did themselves any favors, right, in the way that they presented themselves. You know, one of the the evidences, I think, of the the reliability of the gospel accounts is that the disciples are just brutally honest about themselves. You know, if I were going to make up a story... I wouldn't write about how I was fearful, doubtful, afraid, one dude ran away half naked. Right? I don't think I'm including those details if I'm writing a legend. The only reason I think the gospels would record events like the disciples' doubt and fear and faithlessness and Mary's here is if that's the way it happened. And that's what we see in Mary. She's not this hero who recognizes it right away. She's confused and embarrassingly ignorant of what happened to Jesus and what the empty tomb actually means. And so what Mary does is she she runs to Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loves, is what the text says, that's John referring to himself. And she tells him that somebody's stolen the body and so they take off for the tomb. And I just actually find it hilarious that John records that he was faster than Peter, right? Uh, You know, Peter may have actually died before he read John's gospel, but I can imagine being like, I had a sprained ankle, all right? In all seriousness, it probably means that John was younger than Peter and could outrun him. But what Peter lacks in speed, he makes up for in his decisiveness. Right, because John beats him to the tomb, but he just sort of peers in. But Peter gets to the tomb finally, a little bit, a little bit after John, and in consistent with his character and his nature, he just like bolts into the tomb. And so John had seen some of the linen cloths there, but when Peter blows by him and dro- crawls through this opening, it would probably be like three feet wide or so. He runs straight in the tomb. Peter sees something that John couldn't see from outside the tomb. It says his face cloth that was wrapped around his head was laid to the side. It was folded up. I love what one writer said. The burial cloth is placed to the side by the one who no longer needed it. Right, so, so they find these linen clothes there. And John actually says there in verse 8 that when he when he enters the tomb, he believed. And... and you know, he saw, actually you need, to, you need to keep these words in your mind in verse 8, John saw and believed. And you need to keep those two words in your mind. It matters as we develop this, this text. You know, we like to pick on doubting Thomas, but he's not the only one in this narrative that we'll see saw and then believed. But then verse 9 says something interesting. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead and so what how, how should we understand verse 8 then he believed but they did not understand the scripture well, i think it's best to understand it this way that that sort of the seed of belief is sown in john's heart even though he hasn't completely worked out all the details yet he doesn't understand the, the scripture that the old testament has been building to this the old testament has been pointing to this in fact the Old Testament has been prophesying the resurrection of Jesus. He hasn't connected all these dots, but, but he, he's believing. He didn't understand something like we read earlier in the call to worship Psalm 16, verse 10 For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, that's the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. He didn't quite realize yet that that was speaking of Jesus. He will. In fact, the the apostles later will take Psalm 16.10 and they'll go so far as say, well, David did see corruption. David wasn't writing about himself. He did see corruption. He remained in the grave. His body corroded. He's awaiting the resurrection. But God promised there'd be one greater than David who will not remain in the grave. He will not see corruption. He will be vindicated in his resurrection. And that brings us back to our point then that the resurrection vindicates Jesus. He was brutally, degradingly, publicly executed. But the empty tomb testifies that his death was no accident. It was the plan of God to earn eternal life for all of God's people who will call on his name. The empty tomb declares and announces that Jesus is the Son of God. And so what verses 1 to 10 then do, they sort of set the stage for these interactions. So the tomb's empty, but we haven't seen Jesus yet. right? So verses 1 to 10 set the stage for these interactions with various followers of Christ. And so that first point sort of sets up the next three here. When she sees Jesus... You might say, for Mary, despair turns to delight. For the disciples, fear turns into bold proclamation. And for Thomas, doubt turns into one of the most glorious confessions of the person of Christ we have in all of Scripture. So That's sort of the, the layout. we got to set up, the tomb is empty. Now let's see how Jesus interacts with His followers. In verses 11 through 18, Mary, for Mary, despair turns to delight. Now we're gonna again we're 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 trying to tackle the whole chapter here. So we can't say everything that needs to be said about every verse in this text, but we're gonna try to see how the resurrection changes each of these interactions. And so we saw Mary. We were we were already introduced to Mary, she was the first one at the tomb. You know, other gospels record that, that other ladies w- were with her, and some have tried to say, "Oh, that's that's a contradiction. That's ridiculous. Don't it, it, don't buy into that." Like if I were to tell you, Lizzie and I were in Missouri last Sunday, which we were. We took the whole family. You wouldn't look at, look at me and say, "You know, you took the kids. You liar, right?" It's okay for John to say Mary was there and not say list everyone that was there. It's not a contradiction. That's silly. Anyways, I'm back. Mary Mary comes back to the tomb. She's still weeping. She she still thinks that the body of Christ has been stolen. She even says so to, to the angels that are inside the tomb. And the angels question her. Woman, why are you weeping? That's actually meant to be a gentle reproof for Mary. It's meant to nudge her back towards the truth. In other words, it's 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 almost a statement made in the form of a question. You, You should know there's no reason for you to be weeping. Why are you weeping? But she's distraught, she's in anguish. And she explains to the angels that Jesus has been stolen. That's her first thought. The grave robbers were a thing at that time. And this actually became sort of a common accusation against the Christians who then went and proclaimed that Jesus has risen from the dead. Well, the Christians took the body and, and hid it. It's, it's interesting to me that how, how easily Christianity could have just been disproven in the first 30, 40, 60, 90 120 days. Just find the body. Just go get the body and show them here's Jesus and he's dead. But there is no body. You don't look for the living among the dead. Jesus is alive. But Mary thinks the body's been stolen and she's standing there. After saying this to the angels, she maybe senses or hears somebody behind her. She turns and she sees Jesus. But she's blinded to his person. She thinks he's the gardener. Jesus was hastily buried. Maybe this gardener works for the the owner of this tomb who's like I get that criminal out of my tomb on my property. Maybe the gardener's come to do had already done the will of the landowner and taken the body of Jesus and taken her away. So she asked have you moved the body of Jesus? Just tell me where it is and I'll go I'll go take care of care of it. And again Jesus then, then asked questions much like The angels. And these questions are meant to push her towards the truth, meant to nudge her towards what's true. She says, whom are you seeking? What kind of of Messiah are you looking for? Are you looking for the kind of Messiah that would, would experience corruption in the grave? Because He's not here. You know, Mary Magdalene, was a devoted follower of Christ. You know, we don't want to pick on her too hard. She was at the crucifixion when most of the disciples had ran away or were busy saying they didn't know Jesus. But as big as her devotion was to Christ, as much of a miracle she experienced in coming to Christ, she had demons cast out of her, as big as her devotion was to Jesus, she severely underestimated him. He is indeed the Holy One who will not see corruption. He will not see corruption. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 who will be crushed for our iniquities and then his days will be prolonged. She's underestimated him. And he is, as she learns really quickly here, he's the good shepherd who calls his sheep by name and they recognize his voice. That's what happens for Mary there in verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. I think it's a beautiful story in that, a true story, obviously, don't read too much into that. But how beautiful it is that it's the mention of her name that causes her to see Christ for who he is. And in a moment, when she recognizes him, her despair turns to delight She falls down and worships Jesus and she's clinging to Him. Her sadness, her sorrow is turned to joy and delight. In fact, Jesus said this would happen for His followers. If if you have your Bible, you can flip back just a couple pages to chapter 16. There in verse 16. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, in a little while, you will see me. That's what happened to, that's what happened to Mary. That's what happened to the disciples. They didn't see Jesus because he was in the tomb. And a little, little while later, they saw him. Look at verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. That's what she's doing. But the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Your sorrow will turn into joy. That's what happened for Mary. That's what happens for the disciples here in our next paragraph in just a few minutes. Those words perfectly fit Mary. Thinking Jesus was dead, she was sorrowful. She was weeping and lamenting that the one she had followed had died and apparently someone had stolen his body and taken it away. But her sorrow is instantly turned to joy when He speaks her name and she recognizes His face. Despair is turned to delight and it's turned to joy. And the reality is, if Jesus' body had been stolen, if Jesus' body had been taken, if He's still dead, she had every right to despair. She was right to be in anguish. In fact, the Apostle Paul goes so far to say that if if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, then we we are of all men most pitied. We are without hope and we remain in our sin. So like Mary, for us this morning, without the victorious and vindicating work of God in resurrecting Jesus Christ, we are hopeless, we are helpless, we are in despair, we're in desperation. We have lots to rejoice in this morning because he has risen. And we have a lot to rejoice in this morning because of the way Jesus now addresses his people. Look at the way he talks to Mary. He says, do not cling to me because I have not yet ascended. That's in verse 17. In other words, I think what Jesus is saying, I'm going to be around for a few days. All right. You don't have to be clinging to me so tightly. Instead, I go and tell the others. But notice, notice his message. He says, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God, there at the end of verse 17. My Father and your Father, my God and your God. This is what Jesus has accomplished through his death and resurrection. That he speaks to the disciples as, my Father is, My Father's your Father. My God is your God. And we know that this is not just true for those early disciples, but it's true for all those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. If that's you this morning, if you've turned from your sin and you've embraced Christ, you've recognized there's nothing in me that can earn my, my own standing before God, my own righteousness. I've gone all in on Jesus' work. If that's you this morning, you share in these spiritual blessings. Your Father and your God. And it's not based on what you've done. It's all of what Jesus has just done in his death and his resurrection. That's the point of the gospel that you share in the blessings that Jesus has earned for you. They're they're his blessings. He deserves them. He's the obedient son. But but when you come to Christ, you are so united with him that that his father becomes your father. That That is the status that you share as someone who is in Christ. And it's only possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Again, if He stays in the grave, we're hopeless, we're helpless. There's no talk about our Father. We're still in our sins. But because of the resurrection of Christ, despair is turned into hope and joy in God. For Mary, despair turned to delight. there's There's another group that Jesus will appear to, in verses 19 through 23. This is likely 10 of the 12 disciples. Judas, obviously, not there. Thomas, we'll see in a minute, not there. So we probably get 10 of the 12 here. For these guys, Jesus's closest associates, most faithful followers, ones who said they would die for Jesus, Ones who confess, where else shall we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. Yet they'd failed him. They'd failed him on the night of his betrayal and his arrest. What does Jesus have to say to the disciples? For the disciples, fear turns to bold proclamation. So Mary is there in the morning. We fast forward to Sunday evening. The disciples are locked inside of a house. They're, they're afraid. Their leader, their master, has just been executed. How easy would it be for them to sort of round up his followers and put them to death? So they're afraid. They've locked themselves in their house. And it's in this room that Jesus appears in their midst. And what does Jesus have to say to the, to the cowardly, doubting, unfaithful followers? It says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. The ones who deserted him, who ran away, are greeted with peace. Now this is a, this is a typical greeting in Israel. Even to this day, pe- people in Israel will say, peace be with you. But it seems like the repetition of this phrase in, uh, in John chapter 20 is meant to, to highlight this idea that Jesus is using this, this word peace Packed with meaning he's not just saying what's up guys he's announcing peace through his work despite their fear and their failure you know we sort of glossed over this earlier but when Mary was sent to the disciples remember you know uh, your God my God your father my father you know what else he called the, the disciples he said go to my brother's Go to my brothers. Jesus is not ashamed to call his disciples brothers. He is at peace with them. They are united to him. They don't deserve the title brothers. They don't deserve that. And that's kind of the point. That's kind of the point. When Jesus shows up and says, peace be with you. Notice also the way John ties this announcement of peace to Jesus showing the scars on His hands there in verse 20. Jesus shows up, He says, Peace be with you, in verse 19. When He had said this, He showed them His hands and His side. So the announcement of peace is immediately followed by a demonstration of the suffering that Jesus has just gone through. How is peace accomplished? It's through the scars of Jesus. It's through the wounds. I I don't know how we can't think of Isaiah 53 here. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. Here's Jesus announcing peace. You're my brothers. My father's now your father. Through my work, here's here's my scars to prove it. There's a Poem I read this week that was written shortly after World War I. It's called Jesus of the Scars. And I won't read the whole thing, but I love the final line. It says, And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. The suffering of Christ testifies to the uniqueness of the gospel. That Jesus was willing to suffer for sin. And that even after the resurrection, He bears the mark of His wrath-bearing sacrifice. He could demonstrate His scars to His disciples. And it testifies to the reality that He is indeed the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And like Mary, the text says, and they were glad. They were glad when they saw Jesus. They rejoice in Him. And again, it points out that it's when they saw him. Again, there's a reason I'm highlighting this. Just stick with me for a minute. They saw him and they were glad. John earlier saw the tomb was empty. Then he believed. So what does Jesus do with these disciples? It says there in verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What Jesus says, I hope that's not my truck. Actually, I'm across the street. I think I'm okay. As Jesus was sent by the Father, so he is sending his disciples. So Jesus was sent by the Father to be the only acceptable sacrifice for sins. You know, to borrow from our work in, in Luke, He came to seek and to save the lost. The disciples now, as Jesus was sent, they, He will send out His followers. As what? As witnesses. As preachers of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So Jesus was sent to accomplish the work, and now he's sending out his disciples to be witnesses to what Jesus accomplished. So they aren't taking over the work of Jesus in that sense as if, well, we've got to pick up where Jesus left off. It's not that. It's that Jesus has fulfilled his mission, and now he carries out the saving work that he has accomplished through his body, through his people through the disciples, and by extension, the church of Jesus Christ. And that's the focus here. It's on the proclamation of the the death and resurrection of Jesus. Verse 23 there can be a little bit confusing, and we don't have uh, time to really dissect every verse here. So let me just summarize for a moment. The idea is that the result of the preaching of the disciples will be one of two things. when they they go out and they proclaim that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and there's life in His name, some will believe and they will be forgiven and they will be brought into the body. They will be members of the community of of God. Others will reject that preaching and they remain in their sin unforgiven. Right? There's There's no confusion here about who's doing the forgiving. It's God who forgives but he's fulfilling his task through those who would follow him and then proclaim the message of the death and resurrection. Since the church, then, continues in the apostles' doctrine, since the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, of course, Christ being the cornerstone, then this task of proclaiming the death and resurrection of Christ belongs to the church. And that's what we do. That's what we do every week. That's what we do today. We proclaim that in Christ, you might have life in His name, that you might be forgiven of your sins if you believe what He has done for you. Those who respond to His work are welcomed then into membership in the body of Christ. And this is our primary function as a church, to preach Christ and Him crucified. That's what we want to do. We want to elevate Christ and Him crucified. And to be willing to, to bear the reproach of Christ when that sort of preaching is unpopular. And it's not packing the pews anymore and people hate the message. It's to proclaim that Christ has risen from the dead and be willing to, to be reviled and to not revile in return, but to entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. To hold out for those, even those who would revile us, even those who would mock us, even those who would attack us, hold out for them that their hope is in Christ and they might have life if they turn to Him. That Jesus has died and He lives again. But this, this task is beyond us, right? It's, it's too big for us. It's too big for the disciples whom Jesus is speaking to in our passage. So in verse 22, He, he sort of tangibly Points to the source of their power to fulfill this impossible mission that they've been given. How are 10 guys, add, add Thomas, add the replacement in Acts, how are 12, add Paul, all right, how are 13 guys going to change the world? The Holy Spirit. They'll be given the Holy Spirit. Do you know what these fearful, cowardly, deserting, failing disciples did? To quote their enemies from the book of Acts, they turned the world upside down. They laid down their lives. Those who once fled at any sign of suffering for Jesus laid down their lives to proclaim Christ. These fearful men became the most courageous preachers. What happened? You have to explain that. You have to explain how these cowards became bold preachers. They saw Jesus, and they were given the Holy Spirit. The actions of the disciples before and after, the contrast there and who they are and what they were about, it's inexplicable outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They saw the risen Christ. They were empowered by the Spirit, and they went out and preached the gospel to the world. So for Mary, despair turned to to delight. For the disciples, fear turns into bold mission and proclamation. And lastly, we see here for Thomas, doubt turns to confession. We see that in verses 24 to 29. For whatever reason, Thomas wasn't there the night that Jesus showed up amidst the disciples, that, that narrative we just talked about. And so a week actually transpires between verse 23 and 24. The ESB says eight days, right? They're probably counting that day. That's how they counted. So it's, it's a week. In the meantime, in this intervening week, he didn't believe his fellow disciples who had told him, we've, we've seen the Lord. We've seen the Lord. He he actually says in verse 25 there that that unless he gets to see with his own eyes and touch the wounds of, of Jesus, he will never believe. You know, poor Thomas, if he'd been in Sunday night church the week before, he might have been spared the nickname. Doubting Thomas. The other disciples weren't any different. They weren't any better. So just wasn't there right so he gets this nickname doubting thomas but it it, you know it's this this text this this paragraph's not in here just to sort of throw thomas under the bus it's actually important that thomas sees the risen jesus with his own eyes it's actually important to the narrative that it just wasn't just mary who said hey i saw jesus and she comes back and sees tells the others, like, hey, Jesus is alive, and they sort of bought her story, hook, line, and sinker, and they go out and they preach the gospel. It's important that Thomas sees Jesus so that he might become a witness that Jesus has indeed risen from the dead. So Jesus shows up again in a locked room and he greets the room with, Peace be with you. Jesus demonstrates the way he interacts with thomas that he knew the doubts of thomas remember what remember thomas's criteria unless i see him and touch the wounds myself i'm not going to believe and what does jesus say when he when he shows up he's 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 there and he says now now touch my wounds you know i always want to read i i am a sarcastic person so oftentimes i want to read sarcasm into the into the Bible. And I always want to read this sarcastically, like, oh yeah, you said that, Thomas. Well, here I am. right? But as, I, as I'm meditating on Christ and thinking about this text, I'm struck by how kind it is for Jesus to show up and address the doubts of Thomas. So I think this is less like to own Thomas and more to address his, his doubts. I'd be tempted to give up on Thomas. You don't believe in me? I'm out. But Jesus shows up, and he not only shows him the wounds, invites him to touch the wounds like he said he wanted to, but he calls him to believe. Don't be an unbeliever, Thomas, but be a believer. We aren't actually told whether Thomas touches Jesus' wounds. It it seems to read to me that the sight of Jesus is sufficient for Thomas. And he believes. And we get this confession of faith there in verse 28. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. The doubter utters one of the most glorious confessions of who Jesus is. My Lord and my God. And it says there that he's addressing this to Jesus. And he's recognizing this is true of Jesus. He sees for the first time what he'd been missing. In a sense, he's confessing what John has been arguing since chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John is, or, or, or Thomas is, seeing this for the first time. My Lord and my God. He recognizes that Jesus is Lord and God of all. And when he sees Christ, his doubt is turned into a glorious confession. So what about us? How do we think about ourselves in light of this text? Right? We aren't disciples. We aren't apostles. There are no more apostles. Right? We aren't able to physically see Jesus right now. Can we have assurance that Jesus has risen from the grave? And Jesus actually ends His conversation with Thomas by addressing this. He says to Thomas, Have you believed because you have seen me. You know, again, we always want to read that as some kind of an attack, but Jesus does actually acknowledge his belief. You have believed. It's evident given Thomas's profession, but he is like the other disciples who saw first and then they believed. But Jesus recognized that there's a time, you know, from he's speaking to his disciples, recognizing that there's a time coming. It's shortly after this, there's a time coming where Jesus would ascend to the right hand of the Father, and that there will be many who will believe without actually seeing. So he says there at the end of verse 29: Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who cannot share Thomas's experience, but do share his faith. For us this morning, our faith is not by sight, but it is also not this blind leap into the dark that some people want to try to mock our faith as. It is based in, in part on the eyewitness testimony of guys like Thomas and the disciples. But more than that, it's based on the revelation of God of Himself, <laughs> that He has has given us this revelation and John has recorded it. The words we read this morning and the words that we try to explain this morning, these words are meant to produce faith that Jesus has indeed risen from the grave. Now, for those of us who can't see Jesus, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. You have everything you need to be assured of the resurrection of Jesus. And what's been recorded for you by these eyewitnesses. You know, it's not impossible that there are some here this morning waiting for some sign from God to believe. John says you have the sign. The sign is the resurrection. The sign is the empty tomb. Perhaps you're waiting for some, something crazy to happen in your life, some emotional experience, John says, these words, this is what's recorded for you so that you might believe, and in believing, you will find life. You'll find eternal life in Jesus Christ. The, the, The simple reality this morning is that if he rose from the grave, you should follow him. If he rose from the grave, you should follow him. If he hasn't, then we've wasted our time this morning. But if he has, who else would you entrust yourself to? You can confess with Thomas this morning, my Lord and my God. And for those of us who are in Christ this morning, that is your confession. My Lord and my God. We gratefully proclaim that that's true. My hope is that our our faith is strengthened this morning by looking at these life-giving, life-sustaining life-imparting words that John has recorded for us in the testimony concerning Christ. Blessed are you. Blessed are you who have not seen and have believed. We cannot presently share the experience of the disciples, but we share the faith of the disciples. We share the love for Christ. We share the gladness they felt when they saw Christ, when they realized that he's, He's not there. He's risen from the dead. This is the way one of those disciples wrote it later and we'll we'll close with this. Peter wrote this in 1st Peter 1 Though you have not seen him you love him. Though you do not now see him you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that in Christ the hopelessness of remaining in our sin is removed. That we as your body are empowered to proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that we can confess with Thomas that Jesus Christ is indeed Lord and God. Thank you for that. May you be pleased in how we respond to you and to your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.